So we're going to open now in John chapter 12, the next part of our series in John's Gospel. A significantly shorter reading than the last few weeks. We're going to be reading 11 verses. Um, John chapter 12 from verses 1 to 11. It will be up on the screen for us. And I've entitled this Extravagant Worship. So it reads, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave it alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always, uh, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Paul, can you show our little video, please? I was trying to think of an illustration for where we are in John's Gospel, and this is what I've got. Thank you. The first 11 chapters of John's Gospel cover a period of three years, and it feels to me like this really quick... Uh, drone that has gone through this book. We've really quickly powered through three years. We know that John has picked things to share with us. Uh, we're told that the purpose of that is so that we might believe. Uh, he hasn't given us an exhaustive list uh, of things that Jesus has done, but he's picked uh, and given us really deliberately the miracles that he has, the stories he has, and the teaching that he has of Jesus. So the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel cover three years. And now the next chapter, 10 chapters cover a week. We find ourselves here in this point. Today is sermon number 28 in John's Gospel. And we have 27 left. So we are exactly at the halfway point through this book. And it's like we've gone through this really quick panoramic through three years. And now as we get to this last week, this is John saying, okay, this is, this is now the nitty gritty. This is now where we are going to slowly walk through what Jesus teaches and what happens to him in those last days. We don't really know the gap between John chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's a chance he returns to Galilee at this point and Luke chapter 17 and 19 happen between the two, um, between 11 and 12, but we can't know that for sure. But what we know is that this is the final authoritative Sabbath. This is the final Sabbath of the Old uh, Covenant. This was the final authoritative Sabbath that there would ever be. Because this is Sunday. Christ would go to death on Friday and he would rise on Sunday. 
And as a habit since then, believers met on the day that Christ rose and have continued to do so for 2,000 years. So that's our context. That's where we are this morning. That's where we find ourselves in this book. And I want to look, I'm going to make five points this morning. I'm going to focus on point three and point five will be very quick. But this, this, this story breaks down as a story with characters. And I think that the, the chapter breaks down beautifully into this. So we're going to look at this person of Lazarus, remind ourselves of who he is. We're going to focus mostly uh, on Mary and then Judas. And then we come to Jesus and his response to that. And then we come and we finish with this angry crowd. So we open the text then in verses 1 and 2. And because it's short, I'll read uh, the little sections as we go. Verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. So the first, the first person we come to as we look at this story is this man of Lazarus, the man that we have no recorded words of in the Gospels. But Lazarus was a massive problem. Lazarus was a, a huge problem to the chief priests. And we've already seen in John 11, 50, 57, that they are going to kill Jesus. That's already set in stone. They're already going to do it. Because Jesus is, this is nonsense, what this man is doing. This is utter blasphemy and it is completely unacceptable. Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. But now Lazarus has also become this massive problem. Because his very existence proves that Jesus is the Messiah. This guy is sitting at the table and he's eating. And we're told at the end of this that people are coming to faith. People are coming to faith with their encounters of Lazarus because the living witness is right in front of them. Nobody else but God could raise the dead. And his living witness uh, undoubtedly has spoken testimony. And the very fact that this man was alive declared the greatness of Jesus to anybody who saw or heard Lazarus. It wasn't that Lazarus was in any way great or in any way special. But it was the new life that he had that proved the greatness of Jesus. So if we pause there for a second. Lazarus was nothing special. But his whole life spoke of the greatness of God. He was a living testimony to the good news that Jesus raises the dead. Lazarus was transformed by Jesus. And now he was this effective living witness. I wonder, friends, if we look at this in a spiritual sense, as we did a couple of weeks ago, as the Jesus that raises sinners from, from spiritual death to spiritual life, I wonder, friends, if this morning we recognize our lives as testimonies to the good news that Jesus saves sinners. I wonder, friends, if your story and your life points towards being one who was once dead in your sins, but now alive. See, Gary spoke last week a little about testimonies, and I wholeheartedly agree with him that we like radical testimonies. We like the testimonies of criminals and gang members and people in prison and high up people in other religions. We love their testimonies. They're exciting to us. We read those books, they're amazing. And if you're like me, if you came to, to faith in your late teens, 
you have a bit of life before Christ to reflect on. And I, I can remember vividly when I came to faith that there were things that changed. My friend group had to change because there was things that we would do together that couldn't honour God no matter how I looked at it. And so therefore I, I had to prioritise who I spent my time with and how I spent my time with them. So all of a sudden the fact that I was a Christian became very obvious and very evident to those friends. And there are times when the change that Jesus can make in our lives can be obvious. But I wonder if you feel a detached sense from that if you have walked with the Lord for as long as you can remember. Maybe when we talk about the former self or the old self, you just sit and think, I wasn't that bad at three. I don't remember doing anything particularly sinful or being this person that, that, that Scripture says that my old self was. But I get that. But you have a testimony. And your testimony is that you are a living witness. Often too you are a testimony of faithful parents, a faithful church, faithful Sunday school leaders, grandparents, whoever it might be. There is a story of faithful people there in helping bring you to Christ. And whenever and however we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, we have a testimony. And that testimony is once I was dead, but now I am alive. So I wonder, friends, this morning, are we a living witness of Jesus? Does our life, our conduct, our language, our actions, do they testify to the one who has made us alive? You see, Jesus divides. The loving witnesses of Jesus divided because Jesus divides. Jesus divides friendships. Jesus divides families. Jesus divides this group of people because Jesus divides destinies. So we come then from this, this witness of Lazarus. I think we've exhausted this now. Um, we, we've obviously looked in depth the last couple of weeks at Lazarus. So we're going to leave Brother Lazarus here. So we move then to, to, to verse 3. And really the start of this show, who is Mary? And it says, and it reads, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. We find this story in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. We don't confuse it with Luke 7, um, with the prostitute woman that, uh, that anointed Jesus, that isn't Mary. That was also in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and this is in Simon the former leper's house, so it can be quite confusing. But we meet here in Simon the leper's house, and really he isn't Simon the leper, he's Simon the former leper. Because there's not a chance that these guys are going to go sit and meet in the house of a man with leprosy. And I wonder then, how we come to find a man who had leprosy but now doesn't have leprosy. Well, I think it shows us. I think Jesus healed Simon. Jesus healed Simon, the former leper. And now he has been brought in, he's been healed. There would have been no ointment, treatment, potion, pill that could have healed this man of, of his leprosy. It was God who did it. So we've got this resurrected man eating with this Man who is now well, meeting with a man that is about to die and be resurrected. This is quite an incredible story. 
And when we combine the, the, the gospel accounts, we learn that Mary both anoints Jesus' head and she anoints his feet. And what this is, this is an act of pure love on Mary's behalf. Mary point, pulls out this pint of nard. Now this comes from uh, a spice, or is it a herb? I think it's a herb. Um, from the mountains, uh, the Himalayas in India, I think it crosses over uh, to another couple of countries. And the only way it would get to Israel is by camel. And it was seriously expensive stuff. And it was used at funerals because back in those days you couldn't embalm a body and you had to do something to try and, and, and hide the stench um, that would come from a decaying body. And that was the purpose of not. Mary knew Jesus and, and she believed him. She knew what was about to, income, eh, about to come for Jesus because she sat at his feet, she listened to him, she was ministered by him. She knows what he's going to do. We've got to remember this is Mary of Bethany, this isn't a Mary that was at the tomb. Um, she isn't one of the ones who anoints eh, the body. And we come then to this quote that I love this week. Sometimes you read things and they just capture everything that you want to say and this is it, it next one I should have put those slides the other way around uh, her act of love and worship was public, spontaneous sacrificial lavish, personal and unembarrassed and the slide before that just leave it there Paul, that's okay um, Thinking a little bit of the, the, this inward and this outward signs of worship. Worship ultimately for us it is adoring God. It is treasuring him and who he is and all that he has done. That is our inward focused worship. And our outward focused worship can come in many, many forms. We see it as we gather corporately on a Sunday morning. We have this corporate sense of sung worship. Um, and outward worship shows how much we adore Jesus. So worship is, is, is treasuring him, is loving him, is adoring him. And outward worship is the, the result of that. The result of the fact that we love him so much, our life begins to become shaped by it. So we have then a Mary who understands what it is to adore Jesus. We've got a Mary who loves Jesus. And what we now see is her response to that and what she does with it. And this is worship. This is wholehearted adoration of Jesus what Mary is about to do no matter what those around her might possibly think Mary is about to give everything she has there to Jesus and I've got three reflections and this is what I want to spend most of our time on Mary into the nature of her worship firstly her worship is sacrificial worship costs us something it is impossible to worship Jesus it is impossible to be in union and communion with the risen Jesus and remain unchanged. You can come to a worship service and you can leave unchanged. But you cannot come and worship Jesus and leave unchanged. Why? Because it costs us something to worship. And that cost is change. And worship, adoration of Jesus, cost Mary a huge amount. You know, sometimes Jesus might um, call us to, to, to change how we spend our money, to think about what we do with our finances. Sometimes it's a monetary change in our life that, that might be a form of worship. 
The disciples evidently will come to this are very worried about the monetary value of this perfume that Mary is just lavishing upon Jesus. They see it as wasteful, but Mary and Jesus see this as worship. Worship will cause you your pride. Jesus calls us to humble ourselves and to follow him more closely. You see, this is Simon's house. This isn't Mary's house. She wasn't the one that had to take on the role of a servant here. She wouldn't have been the one responsible for washing anybody's feet. However, she's willing to sacrifice her pride and do the work of a servant to worship Jesus. Sometimes it will cost us our time to worship Jesus as we are called to serve him. Maybe it will cost you something of yourself like it did with Mary. Because it also cost Mary her glory. The Bible talks of hair as a woman's glory. And she took it down and if I had time I would go into it. But the fact that in the presence of a man she would let down her hair and Jesus didn't rebuke her is beautiful. But she uses what is her glory and she wipes the feet of this man. There is so many cultural no-nos in here. Jesus doesn't care because he knows this is worship. The disciples are enraged and I think it's in Matthew we read that the disciples are indignant at the cost of this perfume, this externally lavish worship, this unashamed worship that Mary puts upon Jesus. They just don't get it. And I think what we see here is that Mary is paying a high price for this worship, for her following of Jesus. And that price is more than just money. It is more than just this gift. It is coming back to her in this rebuke from the disciples. And I love Mark 14 verse 6. As we have these indignant disciples, Judas, I imagine, sitting in the corner, counting through his money, working out what he can nick, seeing this gift being given that is worth a year's wages and his head just glowing going woman what on earth are you doing and Jesus says this in, in Mark 14 6 she has done a beautiful thing for me <clears throat> unashamed worship is beautiful in the eyes of the law worship that gives of ourselves to God that is centered on our love and our adoration of Jesus is beautiful. Friends, we come to worship this morning and I wonder what it will cost you to worship him as we think about sacrificial worship. We've prayed already, but there are many who will meet this morning gathering in the name of Jesus that may cost them their life. And these are saints that are willing to pay that price to worship Jesus. For some, it will cost business, financial support. It can leave them ostracized, boycotted, abandoned in villages and in towns. Do you know, I think so often as, as we think of a price to pay, we think in terms of finances. We think in terms of what we give. And certainly our offering with our monetary things that we have is an act of worship. It should always come from a joyful heart and be done gladly. We are not under an Old Testament system of tithe where we are commanded to give a 10%, but everything we give joyfully, and if you can't give joyfully, don't give. But if you are in union and communion with God, your giving is worship to him. Worship costs us. 
It costs us personally. It can cost us our pride. It costs us in humility and service with our time and in many other ways. But the bottom line is this. We cannot worship the risen Christ and remain the same. There is nothing more sad than stagnant Christianity. There is nothing more sad than those who can go years and years and years in the faith and there is not one iota of spiritual growth there. There is a problem there. And if we are genuinely hungry to adore the one who has given us new life, our lives will not be the same. Our walk with Jesus will be marked by a maturity because we are spending time with him in his presence in worship of him. The second thing is this worship is significant. The purpose of worship is to adore, to treasure God, who he is, what he's worth, what he's done. It is to be reminded of his commandments, his love for us, his grace, his mercy, all that he has done and all that he is doing. And I think what's really important here, the important the importance isn't the form of worship of what Mary's doing, but, but the important thing is the subject or the object of Mary's worship. Because the method of worship will never surpass the importance of the one that is being worshipped. If the method of worship ever becomes more important than the object of worship Christ, then we are no longer worshipping Christ. Because the outwards, the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we think, our acts of worship flow from our understanding of God and how we worship him. We see throughout the Old Testament how God deals with false worship. And we see in Jesus there was little he hated more than a pompous, arrogant, external facade of worship that the Pharisees would bring. He hated it. The people around Mary did not approve of this method of worship. We read Matthew 26 verse 8. Why this waste? The indignant disciples said. They think this woman is behaving irrationally. They are so focused on her instrument of worship and not on the one she is worshipping. And Jesus pulls them right back. Pulls them right back in to, to the heart of this. By saying you do not always have me. Worship recognises the presence of Jesus. Worship celebrates not only what Christ has done and who he is, but it celebrates and worships the fact that through his spirit he is present with us today. Mary understood the purpose of worship. Mary understood she knew Jesus and she adored Jesus. And this is some seriously significant worship. This is extravagant, this is lavish, this is a huge sacrifice, this is significant. And what is worship if it is not significant? The worship of God isn't about convenience and ease, but it's about surrendering everything that we are in awe and in wonder of him. Whether that be our finances, our time, our, our hearts, our lives, all of it, every bit of us should be given in that worship of the Christ who died so that I might live. And we talk of significant worship, of course, because God gave significantly for you. God gave so significantly for you that he gave his one and only son. So we're reminded that worship is about the adoring, the exalting of the Lord Jesus. 
And if we come and if we gather corporately and we expect it to be about what we want and, and how we come, we become the focus of worship. At the same time, I think we can be so busy in the life of church that we're so busy in service and doing things that we cannot fully worship God because those activities can often become the focus of worship. Worship is significant. The third thing is is sustaining worship. I think one of the amazing things about this encounter is the fact we're told about the lingering reminder. As she wiped this perfume from Jesus' feet, this perfume is infused in her hair and the fragrance fills the room. And I'm sure as she left, the smell of that perfume went with her. And I think it's a beautiful picture of worship and its lingering effect. Because true worship sustains us in the hardships of life. I must be honest, I have been so blessed in John's Gospel. I have been so blessed to be able to sit here and listen to me and open up this word. And week upon week of sitting under the authority of the word, I've met with Jesus. I've met with Jesus because God is speaking to us through the authority of his word. And it drives me to worship because I fall more and more in love with Jesus the more and more I read this book. And I know I'm not the only one in that. And it it, it brings in me more and more and more of an awe of who Jesus is. Corporate worship should leave us with this sense of, of hunger, this sense of desire for more of Jesus. Corporate worship sustains us. Corporate worship sustains us. The Lord's Supper sustains us. The ministry of the Word sustains us. So our worship is, must be sacrificial. It is significant in nature. And it sustains us. And for this kind of worship, for this true and pleasing worship, we must understand that worship is the debt that we owe Christ. Our lives is what we owe Christ. For what he gave for us. If you feel no debt to Christ. If you feel no sense of. Gratefulness. No sense of awe and wonder. At what he has done for you. There is little drive for worship. And a life that lacks fruit. Is often the evidence of that. So we come then from this woman. Captivated by Jesus. Wholehearted worship to this. Money obsessed man, Judas Iscariot, verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself um, to what was put into it. Again, Matthew 26, Mark 14, show us that although Judas is speaking, the, others, the other disciples agree with him. Why are you wasting this? Mary, you fool, what are you doing? Why are you wasting all this perfume on Jesus? And of course, Judas is referred to as the betrayer. That's not because John knew at this point what he would do, but I think it's because every time when John sat and wrote this book, that is the dominant picture of this guy, Judas. Because he is the one that would betray him. I think everything that is recorded about Judas obviously comes through that lens of what he would go on to do. And it comes through this horrific reality of hindsight for these writers. It's like they can't recall anything about Jesus, eh, about Judas without first qualifying him as the one who would 
betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The price, interestingly, of this nard is given to us by Judas. Because this is the man that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Judas knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. One denarii was a daily wage for a common labourer. Take a few days off in a year, 300 denarii is a year's wage. The sum was enormous. It points either to an affluence in Mary's family or maybe this was some kind of heirloom. And Judas isn't some kind of righteous guy, we're told. He doesn't actually care about the poor. This isn't some kind of noble act that I'm trying to skew to fit some kind of narrative of Judas is the bad guy. But this is personal greed that masquerades as some kind of care for the poor. We know that. And again, I think John's reflecting with hindsight because, well, you're not actually going to have a treasurer that, you know, steals money from you. And he refers back in verse 6 to the one who was in charge of the money bag who was helping himself to it. I think this is all hindsight that he's looking back with. But Judas was the disciple's treasurer. He kept the common purse and to put a common purse in the hand of a dishonest, scheming, money-obsessed person, I'm going to say probably isn't a very good idea. And I think he thought, his hope was that this massive gift would come to them so that he could sell it, get his 300 uh, denarii, put it in the common purse and lift what he wanted from it. This guy has no care for the poor. This guy just wants to see more money coming in so he can take more out of it. The common purse was used for good, of course. It was used for the needs of the disciples, for those that they met. But that common purse was, was, was worship. It was collection. It was, it, was, it was an offering to help those. And I think there's a reflection for us that in, in, in many of our churches that it's possible to do things that look good, that reach out, and that ultimately can help people. But if it is not done in the spirit of worship and adoration of Jesus, it is but empty social action. And for 300 denarii, Jesus, eh, Judas, sorry, wanted to rob Mary of this gift of love. What right does this man to have any, what, what right does he have to make any comment on Mary's act of worship? He has none. Judas cared nothing for devotion and worship, only material things. And this is what strikes me most about Jesus, eh, Judas. Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 300 denarii was a year's wages. 30 pieces of silver was four months' wages. The perfume of Mary's worship was worth three times what Judas would sell Jesus for. Jesus knew, Judas knew, the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mary's devotion to Jesus was worth three times the price that Judas deemed acceptable to sell his master is a worship like that of Mary? Is it wholeheartedly given in service of him or is it this non-existent empty shell of criticism and idolatry that we see here from Judas? <coughs> and it begs the question, how can Jesus bring out a, a Mary and a Judas? Well, it's because Jesus divides. You either know him and you believe in him or you do not. Do you know Jesus? Do you know life? Do you know life is given by him because of his sacrifice? 
So we come to, of course, well, the start of every show in the Gospels, to Jesus and to his response. Jesus, the worshipped one, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave it alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mary has freely received Jesus. She knows him, she loves him, she adores him. And because of that, Mary freely gives to Jesus. And while she is suffering this rebuke from those who would watch on, Jesus is marveling at her heart. Jesus is defending her against those who would criticize her here. Because Jesus knew. He knew that what she was doing flowed from a heart that was full of adoration and love. And Jesus tells the disciples, leave her alone. You see, Mary found pardon for her sins at the feet of Jesus. She was captivated by this man. And she evidently thought there was nothing too great she could give to him. We are to do these things. We are to serve the Lord Jesus, even though at times it may bring upon us worldly criticisms. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom, eh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, the persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, what he's doing here is I think he's encouraging us. I think we see this from him. He's encouraging us to, to take a stand for him in the world, despite whatever will come. Scripture tells us that we can be assured of persecution. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Because not even our master, the Lord Jesus, was free of it. Remember that Jesus was hated from his birth, even as a baby, Herod wanted him dead. He reminds us in chapter 15, verse 18 of this gospel, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. I love the way that Jesus defends Mary. He demonstrates his faithfulness in the fact that he will never leave or forsake her. There is an assurance here that worship that is offered to Jesus is, is acceptable in his sight despite what comes and I'd love if I had time to look at just how radical this is for women at just how radical this is that Jesus would defend this woman whose hair is down in front of him and rebuke a group of men for her there is never and there will never be a greater liberator of women than the Lord Jesus and we see it in a culture where women are second class citizens Jesus has absolutely none of it There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. All are equal before Christ. Men and women, poor or rich, all can assemble here in corporate worship because it is our God that invites. It is him who invites us to call upon his name and be saved. So we come then to the, to the conclusion of this in verses 9 to 11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. There isn't a huge amount to say here. Um, the Jews had already made the decision to kill Jesus. And basically, Lazarus was a massive problem. And the solution was, let's just kill him too. Um, this is just, we have one problem in Jesus, let's kill him. We have a second problem in Lazarus, let's just kill him too. We have this incredible story painted for us, I think, through the, the, the five main lots or groups or people in this passage. We have this living witness, Lazarus, who by nothing of his own accord is bringing people to Jesus because he was dead and now he's alive. We have Mary who offers this public, spontaneous, sacrificial, <laughs> lavish, personal and unembarrassed worship. Again, we see some disciples who miss the mark. We see Judas leading the way with his idolatry, his obsession with worldly things, missing the entire point of Jesus and of Mary's worship. Extravagant worship. So I wonder, friends, how sacrificial, significant, sustaining is our worship of Christ. Does it cost you to worship Jesus? When we worship him, whether that be corporately, whether that be inwardly, whether it be in our day-to-day lives, do we recognise that our love for Jesus and our worship to him is significant and it plays a, a significant part of our life? And thirdly, do you know the sustenance of your worship in the hardest of days? The root question of this is, do you treasure Jesus? Do you love Jesus like Mary loved Jesus? Because if you do, your worship will flow from that heart that just adores him. We're going to come in a minute. We're going to gather uh, around the table. We're going to keep this, this thought of worship as we do that. Before we do that, let's pray and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this example that we have of Mary. I thank you, Lord, that she gave freely because she loved you. Would something of her example resonate with us? Lord, we are so quick to put ourselves first. But would you help us little by little, slowly, day by day, put you as more and more and more of a priority in our lives. Lord, would we feed ourselves on who you are? Would we know the goodness and the richness of God and might our lives show that in wholehearted devotion and worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen.